Hello and welcome to the Camera Channel Podcast. My name is Michael Sanders. Art Adams is known to many across the industry for his extensive contributions to sites such as Pro Video Coalition and CML. His passion for the moving image was sparked at a young age whilst watching TV growing up in the 70s and 80s. That was a catalyst that started him on a journey of trying to understand how those images had been created and why some appealed to him more than others. Until recently, Art was an accomplished freelance DP working out of San Francisco. But in a new chapter of that journey, he has recently taken on a job at ARRI as a cinema lens specialist. Now based out of LA, he has a role that in his words, allows him to geek out to his heart's content with some of the best camera hardware on the planet. Art was incredibly gracious with his time and in total we spoke for almost three hours. So this is part one of our conversation, which concentrates on the more technical aspects of filmmaking, cameras, lighting, and yes, lenses. Hi Art, thank you very much for taking the time to join me today. Absolutely, thank you for having me. So tell me, what first got you interested in cinematography? Wow, well, I think this is probably the strangest way someone's gotten interested in cinematography, but... uh, British television of the uh, 70s and 80s was a strong influence. There were two shows when I was 12 years old that I used to watch. One was a Jerry and Sylvia Anderson uh, sci-fi show called Space 1999. And then there was a show called The Prisoner. I was captivated by the, the style that I saw in both these shows. Technically, they're very different styles, but they had this unifying theme where compositions were more complex. There seemed to be more thought that went into how a scene was covered and how shots went together. I remember Space 1999, I was captivated by focus racks of all things, you know, really extreme focus racks. You know, someone would walk across a room and land in the background behind someone else who was facing the camera and they would say something and then the focus would rack forward to the other person and like, oh, that's really cool. And actually there was this one focus rack I noticed and it's funny because I, I, I saw it when I bought the box set of Space 1999 many, many years later. There's a shot just like that. And I realized when they racked from the person in the background to the person in the foreground, they actually dimmed up the key light at the same time. I think the person in the foreground was too bright even when they were out of focus. And you were supposed to be looking at the person in the background. So on the focus rack, as the focus shifted, they dimmed the key light up about a stop. I saw a lot of very wide-angle shots, shots composed in depth. Not the traditional coverage that I saw on American television where there would be a wide shot, a close-up, and a close-up. There would be a, a sequence of shots that would tell a story. This shot would take the story from here to here. This next shot, you know, there'd be a, an edit. It would take the shot, you know, the story from here to here. And then maybe they'd, there'd be some coverage, and then, you know, that would be it. Or the, they would start a scene on a close-up of a telephone, and someone would pick it up and answer it and then cut out wide as the scene progressed. It wasn't necessary to show someone in a wide shot picking up a phone, but starting in a close-up and picking up the phone without you really realizing where that person was or what was going on, built a kind of tension that they then, they then released by getting a wide shot. And that was the kind of stuff I was picking up on at the age of 12. And I wasn't seeing that anywhere else, and it just fascinated me. And so when did you first pick up a camera? My dad would pick up uh, regular eight cameras at garage sales because they were they were cheaper than super eight cameras. 
I, uh, I could still find the film for a while and I would run around and shoot my own cheesy little films and tried to emulate what I was keying into uh, in some of these TV shows that I was watching. I was captivated by wide angle lenses and composing in depth and the kind of forced perspective that you could get from uh, using wide angle lenses and things like that. I learned, I think, enough uh, that I didn't destroy too many rolls of film, but it, it wasn't until I really got into uh, university and then got out of there and got into the industry that I really started understanding what went into making moving images. So fast forward a bit, mm-hmm. and a lot of people will know you because of your contributions to sites like CML and Pro Video Coalition. But what makes your writing stand out, at least in my head, is the almost forensic <laughs> level of detail you go into. It's funny because I didn't start out being a detail-oriented person, and sometimes I just become overwhelmed by camera tests and lighting tests because there's so much to look at, and you have to be so careful, and I just want to make pretty pictures most of the time. But what I, I think this came from a frustration in trying to learn how to be a cinematographer from other cinematographers because most cinematographers can't tell you why they did what they did. And I was desperate to get into their heads and absorb their knowledge. And I'm not a very intuitive cinematographer. I'm not one of those people who just says, well, the light feels good if it comes from over here. I used to walk into sets and I would start going through my head. If I put a light over there, what happens? I'd go through, you know, put a light over there, put a soft light here. I'd run through a dozen permutations very quickly to try to figure out what in my head made the most sense. I didn't feel a lot of it so much. I, I felt when I had it right, but as far as getting to that point, I was very analytical. And I found that I was fascinated by the hidden side of things I took for granted. And I just liked sharing that stuff. So when I figured something out about a lighting setup, I would write about it and say, hey, I, I just discovered this. And I, I realized that if I do this, I get this look. And here's why I think I like it. That evolved into cameras because at some point, some of the newer cameras coming out were so different that I wanted to learn how they worked. And that's how I started learning how to use color charts and resolution charts and looking at codecs to try to figure out why there were things about certain cameras that I liked more than others. And then more often than not, I was trying to figure out how to make the cheap cameras look more like the expensive cameras because I couldn't get the expensive cameras on you know, <laughs> a certain number of my projects. And it just became this, this rabbit hole of knowledge, all these things that I didn't know were going on. And it just goes on forever. I mean, as much as I know now, I don't know anything. And, and then at some point, I started uh, getting offers to consult. And then it became a kind of problem solving also. Uh, I worked on one of the first broad spectrum LED light. Actually, it was the first broad spectrum LED light ever made for the motion picture industry. And we had a really hard time figuring out how to get the color right. And... I figured out how to do it. And that was really awesome. <laughs> but then I also learned about color and, you know, some, some worrying things about LED lights. And, you know, so I started writing about that stuff. You know, part of it also is just trying to, for some reason, I want to help people like myself uh, avoid the mistakes I've made. And, and one of my mentors wrote a book. And in the beginning of the book, he said, uh, I want you to learn from my mistakes so you can go on to, to make more interesting mistakes. That's good. It, there's something good about helping people beyond the point that I'm at so they can do things that I will find interesting in their work. Well, I know a lot of people find your writing very, very useful. Um, 
Camera tests aren't very easy to organize for lots of reasons, but it is really important to understand what the cameras you're using can do and in what situations you can use certain cameras, don't you think? Yes. For example, at one point there was a camera, it would record HD, but they were using a 4K sensor and they were binning photosites. So what they would do is to get color instead of deburring the sensor, they would just take groups of four photosites, two greens, a red and a blue, and then they would just take those values and go, bam, that's a pixel. And it made for very efficient processing, but if you tried to shoot green screen with it, it was absolutely terrible. <laughs> and that was a problem. In Silicon Valley, which is where I spent most of my career, you shoot a lot of green screen and do a lot of, of effects work. And you had to know that because if someone said, yeah, we want to shoot green screen and uh, we're going to get this camera, like, whoa, 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 <laughs> stop. There were a lot of uh, prism cameras actually for a while that would capture, like there was one, one HD camera that, you know, when you looked at the, at an image, it was 1920 by 1080, but it was actually recording 1440 by 1080. And what, what was happening is in order to save on the amount of data recorded, because at that time, pushing that kind of data onto a tape was really daunting. They would try tricks to try to reduce the data. And the easiest way was to get rid of horizontal resolution. Now, horizontal resolution it actually refers to vertical lines. It's a little confusing. But our brains are more sensitive to, to horizontal lines than vertical lines. So if you throw away the data that preserves vertical lines, we don't notice. So a lot of these men, uh, companies were, were finding ways to cheat based on weaknesses in the human visual system. And, uh, you know, that, that's fine because in most situations you don't notice. For example, uh, like a 420 codec or a 411 codec, throwing away tons of color information. We're much more sensitive to brightness than we are to color. So you can toss that data away and most people won't notice under most circumstances. There are very specific circumstances where that is death and you, you will get a call from post and it will cost someone a lot of money and they will not hire you again. That's the kind of stuff that you have to be really, really careful of. And it could be just really simple stuff. Like uh, there was one project, a couple of, of um, Area Alexa classic cameras that came to the Bay Area ended up on visual effects shoots. And I was shooting one of them and there was another DP shooting the other. Uh, the other DP, very intuitive, very beautiful work, totally not technical. Basically looked, you know, looked at the box and said, oh, EI 800, great, I'll shoot it at that. I took the camera in, I looked at a waveform monitor, I put the lens cap on and I looked at the noise floor at 800 and I looked at how noisy it was and I went, that's eh, a little too noisy for visual effects. They tend to like less noisy stuff. Uh, I'm gonna dial it down to 400, perfect. I'm gonna shoot it there. And I got a call from the visual effects house that was, that was dealing with both of these projects. And the first thing they said is, what the hell are you doing? And I thought, oh God, I've screwed something up. <laughs> and I said, why? And they said, well, your stuff is going together like butter. And this other guy's stuff is driving us insane. And it was just because he had not known to look at noise when shooting visual effects. He's just not that kind of DP. Yeah. So is it important all of the time? No, but there will be that shoot where it does become important. You know, and the tough part is there's so much to camera tests. You really have to, you can't just go in and from the beginning know what to test. It, it's a process. You have to kind of learn what cameras are doing, where they're cheating. They all cheat in one way or the other. 
because you know you're pushing a ton of data through you're trying to emulate what what our eyes and our brains are doing and you can't do that perfectly in a camera so everyone's got their own secret way of doing it and it really helps to kind of come to an understanding of what they're doing so you can choose the right tool for the right job 90 95% of the time it won't matter but that last 5% can cost you a lot of work if it happens at the wrong time i think what i find interesting is how well ari have transitioned from making film cameras to making digital cameras because it's not something everyone's done particularly well. Yes. What the Alexa look is based on is very much what the company learned from making film scanners and digitizing, you know, I don't know how much film. We developed a really strong understanding of of what film looks like. I guess if you think of it in terms of the display, it's an additive process, which means you you basically start with no data. It's like, you know, paint. I use a lot of painting metaphors. You start with black and then you take, you know, oil paint or acrylic paint, red, green, and blue. You, you paint that on and you build it up. So as you add color, you're also making a brighter image. And if you want a really saturated red, you can just use red paint or, or on, a, on a video display. You can go to that and go to the red pixel and just turn it up all the way. And the most saturated colors are or in the highlights. In film, it's the opposite. Instead of oil painting, you're maybe starting with uh, watercolor. Watercolor, you start with a white piece of paper and the light you're seeing is bouncing off the paper. And then you're applying paint, pigment paint, and you're carving that white color away. So if you put down red or blue or green or yellow, you're basically blocking the reflected light off that paper and just passing through the wavelengths that you want to create that color. And to create a really dark color, you have to put on a lot of paint. And that's the same thing as, as film, because you're starting with white light, and then you're carving spectrum away until you get the color that you want. So the opposite happens. You basically end up with um, the most saturated colors being in the shadows. And then how color interacts with highlights is very different, too, because in, in video, you can have very bright, very saturated color. And in film, you can't. And also in film, you've got this very wonderful roll off because as a color does get brighter, it tends to cross contaminate the other color layer. So even if you do have a big, you know, a bright saturated, like, like you can't get a really bright saturated blue. You can have a bright blue or you can have a saturated blue, but you can't have both at the same time. And in video, you can. And the other companies tend to come from more broadcast backgrounds, which is more of the electronics. It's more of an engineering thing. You can have a really, really bright saturated red. Well, nobody asked the question, does anyone want this? And then also, yeah. you know, the, the, the roll off, they tend to let the highlight saturation go to the point where you clip a color channel. For example, if I'm shooting the sky, blue is going to clip before red or green. So how do you handle that? Because you can clip blue, and then if you expose brighter, red and green are going to keep coming up. So your sky is going to turn yellow because your blue is topped out, but the other color channels keep going. So you have to learn how to handle that. And we've figured out a way to handle that really, really well. And I think the other camera companies are still trying to figure that out, which fascinates me because I wouldn't think it would be that hard, but I haven't seen anyone do that yet. You know, I, and I don't know what part of that is not being able to do it technologically versus just a philosophical difference. But that was the first thing I noticed in the original Alexa cameras, because in film, I, I was used to doing things like 
smacking a light through a window and bouncing it off a, a, the, a tabletop or a floor. And then this shaft of sunlight could light an entire room. And in video, you couldn't do that because it would clip and look absolutely horrible. But with the Alexa, I could do that again. And then the other thing I like to do is I always like to pop skin just a little bit brighter. For some reason, I like to make people stand out a little bit more, especially in commercials. And I give them an extra half stop or sometimes a stop of exposure just to make someone glow a little bit more. And in film, that's easy. It looks great. Traditional video, you couldn't do it at all. And the Alexa, suddenly I could do it again. And that really got my attention. I think what's really interesting is we have a lot of options nowadays, but yet people still go back to the Alexa. It's still the default for a lot of DPs. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things that I really like about our look is that it, it's very forgiving. Mm. You can make any camera look good under really controlled circumstances, but it's what they do when circumstances aren't controlled. Part of that yeah. is if you're in a situation where you just have to shoot and you can't control everything, some cameras are going to look better than others. The other situation is sometimes the happy accident looks amazing. I, I used to work with a DP when I, when I was assisting. I assisted for a DP who would regularly just take a streak of hard light and just smack it through a set, like a, like a little piece of sunlight creeping through a window. Or, you know, he said it's, it's, the, it's the mistakes that make things look interesting. And to be able to create those mistakes and then see how they interact with things within the set, sometimes it takes a lot of light to do that, but a lot of light put in a specific place at a specific time. And if it clips or distorts or does weird things, or maybe the shadows go really noisy or something like that, it can be kind of distracting. So it's, it's nice to have a camera that to me feels more like film because with film, you could have those happy accidents and you could run with them and make them and, and they would look great because you didn't have a lot of clipping or you didn't, you know, you didn't necessarily have a lot of grain, depending on how you exposed the, the image. Um, you could just run with stuff that just happened in front of you, or you could create accidents just by seeing what would happen. You say, oh, that's great. Shoot that. In traditional video, you'd have to protect your highlights. You'd have to really mess with things and you couldn't get that same feeling of the light that sense that the light source is within the scene it's impacting things in the scene like when there's a practical in the corner but the light that looks like it's coming from the practical is really coming from another light it doesn't feel the same as if the light is actually coming from that practical it's just a very different feeling and some cameras you can do that with and some cameras is a little bit more difficult you've now taken on this role ari as a cinema lens specialist mm -hmm. and we'll talk about lenses in a minute but are there benefits to having the camera and lenses made by the same manufacturer? I think so. The lenses don't necessarily benefit from being used on our cameras because we, we do make them camera agnostic. But there are benefits in being a company that makes both cameras and lenses because I think we, we, I mean, we've got both laying around and we're constantly looking at how they interact. And lenses do interact with sensors in different ways, uh, depending on what lens you use with what sensor. So I do think there are advantages to having knowledge and the availability of gear because we're constantly looking at how they, they talk to each other. There are some other manufacturers. There's at least one other manufacturer that makes both cameras and lenses. But yeah, I, I do think there's an advantage. There's a symbiosis. It's a horrible word, but there is a symbiosis there, isn't there, between the two, the two divisions. 
Yeah, well, yes. I mean, uh, you know, Aria is a surprisingly small company when you really get down to it. And these people, you know, when you go to the, the main office in Munich, you know, these people interact all the time. Uh, they actually have, you know, like big open space offices. You've got a lot of product managers like working in the same spaces. They're constantly talking to each other. I haven't seen the new factory, but the previous building wasn't that big. So it was very easy for everyone to talk to each other all the time. And you'd have uh, people constantly coming and going in different labs and looking at different things. And if someone found something interesting and, you know, how is this lens interacting with this sensor, they could go walk to the person who is in charge of the camera and, you know, say, hey, what about this? And so it's uh, it's a really interesting environment for collaboration. And I, I think it brings a lot of benefits. I don't know of another company that is quite the same. There are companies that make, you know, very good lenses, but, you know, I don't think they have the availability of cameras and the deep knowledge of how those cameras work, you know, only a few steps away. And I, I do think that's a real benefit. Whenever I go visit that building, it's just amazing the conversations you could just have with people in halls. You know, they walk by and you go, you know, hey, you know, you're in charge of PCA. Hey, you're in charge of, you know, lenses. You're in charge of, you know, this camera or that camera or the color science or, and they're all just there. So I, I do think it's a, it's a big benefit. To me, it's a unique environment. With all the companies that I've worked with, I've never seen anything like it. How much interaction do you have with the lighting division? Uh, actually, quite a lot. And that's what's really interesting now is there's this, uh, this move within the company to get us all talking to each other. Because I think in the past, um, camera and lighting tended to be different units. And we all kind of interacted, but you know, we weren't really up to speed on each other's products. And now we're really working hard on bridging that gap. I mean, we still clearly have you know, camera and lighting. But we interact a lot. Um, we attend each other's meetings. And you know, on their side, they're learning about lenses and cameras. And, and I think that's great because all of this stuff interacts. You can't really talk about these things in isolation. They all have effects on each other. And I think it's, it's great that we all talk to each other and we, we learn each other's products and we learn how they interact. Because now we can go out into the world and, and talk to people about these things and say, well, you know, yes, we can tell you uh, exactly how this works with that or what look you'll get out of this or, you know, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's just it's the same in production. You have different departments that focus on different things, but they all have to come together to make a shot happen. And on our side, it's, you know, we all have to come together to make products that play well because, you know, we want our customers to make beautiful images. I mean, that's the whole reason we exist. So the, the more collaborative we are and the more we understand how all our products are interacting, the, the more easily we can help our customers do what they do best. Which brings us on to your new role as a cinema lens specialist, which I guess means you just spend your days playing with Avi's extensive range of primes and zooms. I'm less familiar with the, the zooms. I use them as a DP, but I haven't really been focused on them uh, lately. The primes are what I've really been working on because we've got this family of primes we're actively making all of them and they do a lot of things that other primes just don't do. The ultra primes are the workhorse. They've been in production for 20 years now. They're still in production. Uh, they're really good solid lenses. I use them a lot actually. Um, actually I remember what, as a DP I went through my my Cook S4 phase and I shot everything on Cook S4 because everyone else was doing that. 
And then at some point I kind of got tired of it and I went, yeah, what can I try? You know, ultra primes. I haven't shot with ultra primes in a while. And, um, you know, I wasn't used to thinking of them as having a really strong look, but then I, I got back into them and I went, oh, this is actually really cool. I shot a lot of commercials on ultra primes for a while. They're just really solid lenses. Uh, and they, they roll out of focus really interestingly. The Bocas have got a little bit of a vintage thing going on. They're just really solid. Master Primes, they're probably the best Super 35 lenses you can get. So if you want that, they're the gold standard. And I've been seeing more TV shows being shot with them because, uh, especially wide open, they look really interesting. I believe Man in the High Castle is shot on uh, Master Primes and, and like everything wide open. And it's a really interesting look. They have a slightly different quality to them when you open up wider than two, which is kind of fun. The contrast lowers a little bit. Uh, they become just a little bit softer. Um, they're just really nice. And of course, you know, shooting at a, at a 1.3 is always nice for the lighting budget. <laughs> but not for but the focus, but, but it's bright. Not for the focus. Well, you know, I, I have less sympathy for them now that everyone has a massive monitor and, uh, you know, a wireless focus unit. You know, yeah. I, I was really kind to my assistant for a long time. I wish wouldn't shoot wider than 2.8. But then once that trend took off, all right. Sorry, I'm having fun now. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're they're really great lenses, and they're they're they were kind of the the first step, I think, towards really uh, immersive lenses because they don't get in the way. Uh, they're rectilinear, so you don't see barrel or pin cushion distortion. They roll out of focus really nicely. Um, there's no focus breathing uh, or very little, so that on a big focus rack, um, it, it doesn't draw your attention. It just happens. Your attention just goes from one place to another, which I really like. I don't like that extra little, you know, zoom. Master anamorphics, they give you the benefits of the, the anamorphic bokeh. So the background still has that oval stretching effect, mm. that abstract effect that people like so much in anamorphic lenses. But they're really kind to actors as well, because a lot of anamorphic lenses will squeeze and stretch and do strange things at the edges of frame. And that can be interesting on backgrounds, but it can be a little limiting because if you put someone at the edge of the frame and suddenly they lose 20 pounds, that might not be <laughs> desirable. I guess it's better than if they gain 20 pounds, but still, it's that's not always ideal. So we just created um, anamorphic lenses that at the point of focus, they don't introduce a lot of artifacts at all that you would get from anamorph. The, the look, the anamorphic look is in the background. So actors don't have to be afraid. And then the signature primes are just kind of the, the next generation because the uh, ultra primes and master primes were, were made specifically for film. Master uh, anamorphics kind of split the difference between digital and film. And then signature primes are digital only. There are some very specific considerations in making those. Uh, for example, a lot of people think that master primes are maybe a little too crispy in digital because they were designed to punch through the emulsion layers of film and give you the best image possible in a soft, low res medium. Uh, and maybe in digital, they can be a little too much. And a lot of people like master primes, but they usually use maybe a, an eighth pro mist or a, a little bit of glimmer glass or something that take the edge off. Uh, signature primes are designed to keep all the resolution that you would find in a master prime, but lower the, the micro contrast in the skin to smooth it out. So they, they add a little bit of warmth to the skin. The color is exceptional, but they do pop skin just a little bit. And then they, they just uh, make skin look natural. It, it doesn't 
the skin texture doesn't look too soft or too sharp. It just looks like uh, there's one DP who says it's like looking through a beautiful window. And, and people really do, I think, look great, but they don't look affected the way a lot of lenses look. You know, the idea was that as display technologies get better, they become more immersive. It feels more like you're there. And these lenses are designed to kind of preserve everything in a scene to preserve that immersive feel, but at the same time, try to make people look the best they can look. Which is, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a, a it's, it's, it's a tricky thing to do because you, it's easy to make really hyper sharp lenses. Uh, but sharpness is a combination of resolution and contrast. So we tried to keep the, the resolution and contrast for the, the coarse detail. But when you get into the really, really fine bits, we, we lower the contrast just a little bit. So it kind of emulates how your eye sees reality. Now, people say, you know, oh, character is all about the aberrations in the lens but it can also be about building a really good lens and then introducing some specific characteristics that introduce a look that you want rather than just deliberately creating aberrations. And that's kind of the direction we went because there you just, you can't ask German engineers to make something that's not perfect. <laughs> but what you can do is you, you can say, we want it to look exactly this way, dial that in, and they will. And that's what happened in this case. And it was a lot of research into what people really wanted out of a really good lens. Now, one set of lenses we haven't talked about is the um, DNA, because they're only available ah, yes. through Harry mm -hmm. Rental. But I love the idea that you can take a lens in London and then go to LA and go, right, I need the lens to do this to look like that. Well, the DNA range is really about flexibility. Um, if you, it, it, signature primes are very well balanced as far as aberrations. So no, no one aberration stands out. And then we back in a look from there using some secret sauce technologies to, to identify specific things like skin tone and, and texture and affect that only. And then also uh, flares. We do some very specific things with flares. DNAs are more about the the happy accident or being able to craft a look by distorting the lens by enhancing aberrations. And the idea is that they're vintage glass, they're uh, carefully selected vintage glass that is then stripped of its coatings, repolished, because a lot of times the, the coatings uh, change color over time, and then they're recoded. So that you still have the character of the donor glass, but the look is more consistent, which is something that is, you know, it's pretty important in production. You know, if you've got one lens that's green and one that's yellow and it can cause some issues uh, when it comes to color grading. So we're, we're trying to preserve that character, but also uh, modernize, modernize the lenses somewhat for the way we work now. But then also the, the design allows the elements to be moved around in relation to each other. I don't know exactly the, the details of that uh, because every lens is different in what you move and how far you move it and what's possible. But the housings are designed to do exactly that. So the idea is that you can go into every rental and say, I want, I want some more, I want that spherical aberration glow. I want some donut bokeh. I want sharp in the center, soft on the sides. I want any combination of that stuff and, and probably some more. And they'll go in and they'll move things around and say, what do you like? What do you think of that? Oh, maybe a little bit more uh, spherical elaboration. Okay, 
and I'll take it away and come back in 10 minutes. And what do you think of that? And you can really dial in the look very precisely. And, and of course, the lenses work on the Alexa 65, which is really hard to do because it's such a big sensor. So it's, it's kind of a very unique package that we, that we offer. You can get that 65 millimeter look, but also have these, these very funky optics that uh, we can make look just about, you know, I mean, we, they have a lot of flexibility in dialing in exactly whatever look you want. On my bookshelf behind me, I've got applied photographic optics, a focal press tomb that I bought for about 10 quid ah, somewhere. Yes. It's fascinating just to think that you know tiny variations in glass, tiny variations in coatings can make so much difference to the image. I completely agree. I have the same book, and uh, I reread it every once in a while, and I understand just a little bit more. And there's so much that I don't know, but and there's so much to learn. Mm. But it's interesting. And the thing I've been focusing on lately, because I noticed this in some footage that I captured a while ago, that I didn't notice at the time, uh, there's a, a huge difference between how lenses capture LED lights, broken spectrum light sources versus broad spectrum light sources. Some do this really well, some really don't. I had never thought of this before. And it occurred to me that lenses are effectively filters. They're trying not to be in most cases, but they are filters. They pass some wavelengths of light better than others. And that has an impact on the image. There's just so much to understand. Yeah, I will never, I will never know it all. But what's interesting is the people who design the lenses don't necessarily know it all either, because I'm coming at it from the creative side. They're coming at it from the engineering side, and you kind of have to meet in the middle at some point, and that's a really difficult thing to do. And you're obviously enjoying getting to work with these different camera technicians and the lens technicians. You said oh, you're learning a lot from them. Yes, I mean there's so much to learn, and, and sometimes it's it's frustrating because. You know, to them, it's just second nature, and they don't even know to tell me things. So I have to know what questions to ask, and often I'll stumble across something uh, in my travels around the Internet or talking to the different people, and I'll go back and I'll ask them, you know, what about this? Oh, yeah, that happens. But you didn't tell me. Well, but everyone knows this. You know? <laughs> like, well, yes, of course, in your world, this is completely normal, you know, to the world of a, of a cinematographer, I didn't even know to ask this question. It helps that it's a very focused company. The company only does, I mean, there's a, a medical division, but generally it's nothing but motion picture camera lenses and lighting. And that's it. And, you know, a lot of other large companies, the motion picture side of it is kind of an afterthought. You know, it's a small little division in a corner that's kind of doing it more for the prestige and a little bit of income. And for Aerie, it's just, that's everything. This is all we do. There's nothing else. We were both briefly on the uh, CML lens chat on whatever mm -hmm. day it was. And I mentioned that I'd been playing about with the um, Olympus Zuko 50mm mm. that's been on my uh, OM2 for God knows how long. And it's amazing how good oh, it wow. looks. You know, it's the nifty 50 that came with the standard Olympus cameras for however <laughs> long. I'll try and hire a, sig a set of signatures at some point and put them side by side and see how they well they cut together, see what the differences are. Because that's where you start to really see it. Once you've got the really good lenses and the really bad lenses, <laughs> and you can, it's the differences are really obvious. But it's when you get to the subtle variations that I find fascinating. The 
differences are really tiny, mm. but they're there. Interesting, yes. And, and the best way to see that is to compare lenses, I found. I mean, you can either uh, shoot with lenses for a week or two and get a, get a feeling for them, but you still don't necessarily know how to articulate what the differences are. But if you line up, and I've done this a bunch mm. of times uh, because I, I kind of had to artistically reverse engineer signature primes when I, when I took this job because I, I knew I loved them, but I didn't know why, and it drove me nuts. So I lined up a bunch of lenses, and I was very quickly able to see what the differences were. And a lot of times it's not necessarily about you know whether one lens is better or worse than another. It's just tuning into what you appreciate in lenses and, and where you happen to be. Uh, some people like to uh, go with really clean lenses. Some people like to go with really you know lenses with a, you know, a lot of aberrations. Some people choose the right lens for the project. Uh, some people go through phases. I've certainly gone through phases. I, I, when rehoused Cook Speed Pancros were available, um, I went for about a year. Every commercial I shot was on Cook Speed Pancros. <laughs> I just went through that phase. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting, you know, and and it's and it's funny to yeah. see you know resolution mandates from uh, different studios and streaming companies. And then you read what lenses are being used on what productions and you kind of go, okay, I'm not sure you understand what resolution really means. You know, there's a difference between pixel count and, you know, captured resolution. People tend to tune into color and dynamic range before they see resolution, especially at the distance that people normally sit from TVs. It's really interesting to watch all the experimentation though, isn't it? Just seeing the different looks people come up with, different things people are trying. I do love all the experimentation that's going on. And I love the fact that there are so many streaming networks, especially that are willing to let cinematographers do this. And I think that the competition is a big part of that because everyone wants their material to stand out. So they're willing to push things a bit more. And especially yeah, now that HDR yeah. is coming, you can, you know, we're going to be able to push things even further. Yeah. It's really interesting. I was uh, speaking to a friend of mine who's seen this new series, Devs. I don't know if you got oh, that. Yeah. Um, he was saying he's seen it on a HDR monitor on a proper Sony X330, and it looks fantastic. And it would be interesting to see what it's looked like on my uh, Panasonic LED TV. Yeah, I just I just upgraded to uh, an, an HDR TV. It's 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 good. It's not great, but uh, it does make a great a big difference. And I'm about halfway through devs now, and uh, it, yeah, it it looks phenomenal. But there's other series yeah. that I've, I've been watching where they're doing things like hanging sparkly bits in the frame and, you know, sh doing a lot of, you know, flares. And mm -hmm. it's clear no one's watching that in HDR because the sparkly bits end up being the most visually interesting things in the frame. And you really yeah. should be looking at the people, I think. So yeah. I think there's yeah. going to be a transition period from trying to make limited dynamic range Rex 709 look good to mm -hmm. suddenly discover that, you can be a lot more subtle in HDR and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you know, using, using this, uh, Rec 709 hammer doesn't always work so well when you're, you're dealing with higher resolution and higher dynamic, uh, dynamic range. As I often say to people, if they're looking there, then we're doing something wrong. And that's our job as cinematographers to make them look in the right place. Ah, uh, yes. That's something that I, I learned very early on from some cinematography book that I, I, read one as I, I was a teenager cinematography is is about making people look where you want them to look at any given time and mm. uh you know you, you want to direct people 
within the frame. There's a great book that I read on painting. I think it's called The Simple Secret to Better Painting. And it's, it's really interesting because it talks about uh, painting composition, painting tricks for using color. And it has actually several simple secrets in it that apply to every kind of uh, image making. You know, I, I highly recommend it because a big part of painting is, you know, someone's walking through a gallery and they see, you know, if they see one of your pictures, you probably want them to buy it. And a big part of them is, part of it is you have to, you have to lead people through a painting. You want them to start looking mm -hmm. in one spot, move over here, move over there, and then go back to where they started. And then you want to keep them within that frame so they don't just go on to the next picture. And these are very simple concepts, but if you apply them to motion picture imaging, it can be very powerful stuff. And I think in HDR, mm. when you know you can very easily create a frame where there's lots of interesting stuff to look at, it's very helpful to mm. maybe look at some of these tricks that have been used in other mediums to try to help people through a frame that has more resolution and more dynamic range than they've seen before. And if yeah. there's a lot to see, you know, it, it can be confusing. The example that I, I've used a lot is that one of the first times I saw UHD and HDR together was uh, in a shop at Sony Studios. They had a, a demo reel, and there was this shot where the camera starts off in this, at this little roundabout in this little uh, Nordic village, and it's all cobblestones and cars going around, and then the camera takes off on a crane. It just starts lifting up. And you can feel the cobblestones just drop away. And then suddenly you're not looking at them so much. You're looking over the roundabout at the houses. And the houses in the background are all different colors. And, and then the roofs have all these different textures. And then you get up higher. And then you can see into the backyards where there's people hanging up laundry and kids playing. And I almost had a, I had a little visual mini panic attack. Because there was so much to see and it was so interesting. And I didn't know when the edit was coming. Yeah. And I, can, I feel like with HDR and UHD, we could probably do a better job of creating frames that don't create that feeling, unless that's the feeling you want. But I feel like we have to yeah. help people because there's so much to see. Yeah, just because you can do it doesn't mean you have to do it. Right. It, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of, you know, rookie colorists are always, you know, creating porthole vignettes and cranking the saturation way up and, you know, taking out everything but one color, you know, because they can do it and they're learning. And I think that's a valid part of any creative process. But at some point you learn to use finer brushes more carefully. And that's where we leave the conversation for now. In the next part, Art and I talk about the art of cinematography and the role of the DP. That's coming up in a few weeks. In the meantime, do let me know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter by searching for The Camera Channel Podcast. Until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>